Hi, Brad Jersak here. I'm here to tell you about my new book, A More Christ-like Way. We're going to be talking about the Jesus Way, or the Jesus Walk. I'll start the book with some conversation about deconstruction, which is a very popular term these days. And I'll offer some alternative metaphors that I think are more gentle, such as art restoration, for example. Then we'll get into four counterfeit ways, ways that we've constructed that try to co-opt Christianity and turn it into Christless religion. Ways that have a moralistic attitude to it, or perhaps us-them mentalities and exclusion, or civil religion for that matter. But then we'll get to the heart of the book. Seven facets of the Christ-like way. And those facets will include such gems as radical inclusion, radical hospitality, radical surrender, radical forgiveness, and so on. In this book, Jesus shows us what it is to be human. So this is the third week of our series, uh, More Christ-like Way, A More Beautiful Faith, based on the book by the same title by Brad Jerzak. And we're reading it together as a church and, and then discussing it in an online connect group so that you hear the sermon and then that the sermon's based on the reading for this week. And then you discuss it in an online connect group on Wednesday nights. And there's still four more online connect groups in the series. You can still order the book if you want. Making four is better than none if you're still thinking about it and on the fence. So this is the book here. You can order it wherever books are sold. You'll have a drone. Drop it off at your doorstep in a couple of hours probably. And then uh, you can be a part of the online connect group. If you go to wellchurch.org, you can get a link and participate in that group. So today we're talking about um, facets one and two in the book, which is pages 107 through 133. And the topics are radical self-giving and radical hospitality. And as I said, when we began this book, there are parts of this book that are challenging. And if we can be honest with ourselves, they are especially challenging for suburban Christians, for people like us and churches like us where we are, and, and so there may be parts of this book that make you feel uncomfortable. How many of you realize that when you, when you feel uncomfortable, sometimes that's an invitation to grow? That perhaps when, when you feel uncomfortable, that could be a stirring, that could be a, an invitation from the Spirit of God for you to grow. It doesn't mean that, you know, we, we naturally will have kind of a gut reaction sometimes when we hear something that's different or we don't like, like, you know, and we just like want to run out. And, and, but maybe, perhaps, if we feel uncomfortable at times, it's an invitation from God to grow. And I think that's going to happen in this book, especially if you haven't gotten into this week's reading yet. And, and congratulations, it'll probably happen today uh, during the sermon as well. So maybe that uncomfortableness is an opportunity to grow. So first, on page 107, Brad talks about the, the word radical because his facets here, his chapters, as he calls them, they're, they're radical self-giving, radical hospitality, and so on. The word radical, obviously, is used a lot today, and, and usually radicalism is something we fear. He, he goes to the meaning of the word radical, which is root. It's rooted in root. The word root, think radish, which is a root. And, and so radical means to get back to the roots of something. And so in Brad Jersak's usage of the term radical, he's talking about getting back to the roots of the Jesus way what it means to follow Jesus. And so first of all, radical self-giving. A few years ago, I attended a conference for nonprofit leaders here in the Valley. And there were about 50 of us there maybe, a diverse group of people. And it was a conference about understanding poverty. It was really enlightening and it was a great experience. And, and during the conference, the leaders of the conference had us all go outside and had a big field. And, and again, there were maybe 50 people there. They had us line up. Uh, single file, shoulder to shoulder. So picture, you know, a bunch of people on this side of me and a bunch of people on this side of me, this long line of people. And then the leader started giving instructions like this. If one or both of your parents graduated from college, take a step forward. And some people took a step forward and some people didn't. And then if you've ever skipped a meal or went away from a meal hungry because there was not enough money to buy food, Take one step back. Some people took a step back. Some people didn't. Uh, it, other examples, if your parents or parents work nights and weekends to support your family, take a step back. Some did, some didn't. If your sex or race is widely represented in the US Congress, take one step forward. 
Some people did, some people didn't. I want to give you a few more examples because I think it's just enlightening. If anybody in your family has ever been addicted to drugs or alcohol, take a step back. Some people did, some people didn't. Picture, would you be stepping forward or stepping back on each one of these? A couple more. If you almost always feel comfortable with people knowing your sexual orientation, take one step forward. One more. If you've ever been called names regarding your race, socioeconomic class, gender, sexual orientation, physical learning disability, and felt uncomfortable, take one step back. And there were 50 or 60 of questions you know, like this. And so, you know, where would you be right now, right? I mean, would you be taking some steps back, some steps forward? We're all your steps back. We're, we're all of them forward. So we got to the end of this exercise, and of course, it kind of felt uncomfortable and challenging during the exercise, but we got to the end of this exercise, and you realize, man, like, I'm, I'm feeling the feels right now. I'm feeling emotion right now. Because, first of all, all these questions bring up difficult parts of your life. You know, when you had to take a step back, but then you look around and you realize when well, there are other people who have had different experiences of life, and you saw the questions when some people took a step forward, some people took a step back, and you kind of know each other better now, just because you've seen how they responded to, to the exercise, and then they went through some reflection questions, like, um, you know, what did you learn from this exercise? What happened in you during this exercise? How did it feel to be in the group that took a step forward or step back? Uh, was there a time when you wanted to be in the group that moved forward? These reflection questions. And, and so it was an emotional exercise. And now where I was at the end of the exercise, there are people scattered all over this field now. So what, it was a single file line. There are people way up there. There are people way back there. Where I was, was I wasn't in the front. I knew there were, there were people in front of me. But I, I hesitated to look behind me even while the exercise was going on. And especially when it was over, and I knew how many people were there, and I thought, well, there are people in front of me, but there are more people behind me. And I hesitated. And finally, I turned around to look behind me, and I saw mostly uh, women of color at various stages behind me. Now, I grew up in a lower middle class situation where compared to my peers, I felt like I didn't have as much as them. And there were definitely people in front of me in this exercise, but it, it caused me for the first time in my life to literally see what privilege means. It's called the privilege walk. And if you want to get Americans riled up, talk about privilege, correct? I mean, if you want to ruin Thanksgiving dinner, bring up privilege. And the turkey's going to be flying the gravy you know, pretty soon. But I saw it for the first time in my life. And I, as I looked back, and, and I knew some of the people behind me, and they're awesome people, I felt grief for what they had been through. I felt a little embarrassed of the privileges that I had, that they didn't have. And it caused me to think, you know, this world is not as it should be. There are so many things that can be made better and now I see it, and I see the effects of it on awesome people I know who are my friends. And what I can do with my privilege is I can either choose to just enjoy it and just go, go for it, you know, or I can choose to do something about the situation and try to work to make things better. You Maybe you've heard this statement years ago. It was said of a politician. He was born on third base and thought he hit a triple. You don't want to be that person. Nobody wants to be that person. And so as I looked around, I thought, oh, I can do something now about this situation. Now, lots of Christians in the United States view their Christianity as a culture war right now precisely with the goal of protecting that privilege. Do you know what I'm talking about? It seems like there are so many Christians who define their Christianity exactly in whatever way that helps them hold on to that privilege. So they think the Christian stance is whatever protects that privilege. That's where we are now in 2021 America. And like we said last week when we talked about the ugly forms of Christianity, often they think that means protecting anything that's white and privileged 
and Christian to the exclusion of everybody else. Now, you've heard lots of, of St. Peter jokes, like somebody dies and they go to the pearly gates and they talk to St. Peter, right? I saw one the other day. If, if you are somebody who likes grammar and like pronouncing words and that, you know, you just like to hear words pronounced correctly and things like that, I think, I think you'll like this one. Um, somebody said she, uh, she died and went to heaven and, and saw St. Peter. I'll have it on the screen for you here in a second. St. Peter says, why should I let you through the pearly gates? And she said, I just listened to a coworker say supposedly seven times, and I didn't correct her. And Peter's like, get in here, you. You've suffered enough, right? You've been through enough hell. You, you, you come on in to heaven. Uh, how about irregardless, anybody? That would be another, right? Expresso, anybody, right? And so these St. Peter jokes, they kind of poke fun at the, at the idea of what it means to go to heaven. So I suppose here, like the most un unfunny thing you could do is dissect a joke which is what I'm gonna do right now, of course. I guess what they're saying is like, you're really patient. Okay, cool, like you didn't correct your coach, so now you can come into heaven, right? Which patience is a good thing. But these jokes are all about like what gets you into heaven. And then a lot of Christians' mindset, of course, that's tied up with being a Christian, salvation, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And so for us who do want to follow Jesus, you call yourself a Christian in a, in a culture in which lots of people think Christianity is protecting privilege. Our question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian in 2021 America? Another way of asking is, what practical difference does it make if you want to follow Jesus versus somebody who doesn't? Now, there are lots of moral, non-religious people. I don't believe you have to be religious to be moral people. I know that's not the case. I know atheists who are more moral than a lot of Christians. So, but, but we should ask, what difference does it make if I'm a follower of Jesus versus somebody who's not at all concerned with morality or goodness or, or being a follower of Jesus? And so Brad Jersak says, for those who want to follow Jesus, Jesus shows us what it means to be human, to be fully human, to, to, what, to live in such a way that leads to human flourishing. And if I follow him, if we follow him, then that will help all of us to flourish. For example, Philippians chapter 2, how does Jesus do this? Paul writes about Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped, something to be gripped and held onto with a death grip. I'm going to have a death grip on my privilege and I'm never going to let it go. No, he didn't do that. Verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He, what? Humbled himself and by be becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the pre-incarnate Christ, to use the million-dollar theological word, Jesus has always existed, Jesus comes in the form of a human in a manger on the first Christmas. Jesus enters into the human experience and, and Jesus humbles himself, makes himself nothing, Paul says. The Greek word there is the word kenosis. It means he emptied himself of his divine attributes. He emptied himself, he humbled himself, he let go of his divine attributes, he let go of his privilege as a divine being and humbled himself and entered into the human experience. Jesus took the track of downward mobility. Jesus relinquished privilege and entered into the human experience, humbling himself. And so for somebody who wants to follow Jesus, the goal is that we would imitate Jesus. Paul says, let that same mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. So to follow Jesus, we are people who are willing to give up or to share our privilege, as Jesus did, for the benefit of people who don't have your privilege. This is the part where some people might be like, Ugh! and start running, where's the nearest exit? But, but Paul said, let that same mindset that was in Christ Jesus be in you. 
he emptied, he emptied himself, he, he let go of his privilege and humbled himself for the benefit of people who don't have that same privilege. And then Brad writes on page 112, while I don't like to imagine myself as racist or misogynist, who does, right? Nobody's a racist if you ask them, correct? Nobody's a misogynist, nobody's a hater if you ask them. The truth is, I don't live and breathe the experience of how power exerts itself on women and people of color. I'm oblivious to the advantages intrinsic to my sex or color in my culture. That blind spot is what we mean by privilege. And that's what the privilege walk helped me see and feel when I saw my place in that group. So as somebody who wants to follow Jesus, I recognize my privilege and I want to follow him. I want that same mindset to be in me that was in Jesus. And I'm willing to let go of it or share it for the benefit of people who don't ha have it. And that naturally leads to hospitality. So that was his discussion of radical self-giving, but it naturally leads to radical hospitality. So the Oxford Dictionary defines hospitality as the friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guest visitors or strangers, okay? What it, what it really means is you're willing to welcome people as equals into your house. You have people over for dinner and now they're, they're equal with you. They're welcome to be in your social circle. So to offer hospitality is to welcome people to be equals with you. And of course, that has everything to do with how we view people and our own privilege. Do you view yourself as superior to some group of people? Is there some privilege that you want to hold on to? Like Jesus didn't do. He didn't see it as something to be grasped or to hold on to, but he was willing to let it go. And you won't let them be equals with you. Or are you willing to let something go or share privilege? To welcome somebody is an equal. And offering hospitality is radical because not everybody feels welcome in our churches or in our country. So for example, who has followed the news over the past week or two about the, the missing young woman? Her name's Gabby. Gabby Petito, is that her name? So most of us, right? When you have stories like that in the news, they're like true crime stories. Well, they're not like, they are true crime stories. And, and they grab ratings and they go viral and, and we watch to see what's going to happen. So this young woman was on a road trip with her boyfriend, am I correct, so far? And, and she went missing, and then there was a video of an altercation with the police, and she was distraught, and it looked like potentially a domestic violence case from the start, and now her body's been found, and, and there's a warrant issued for her, her boyfriend's arrest. And obviously, that's an awful tragedy. It's the hell of hells that somebody that you love goes missing, and then you find that something like that has happened to them. And you may, as you think back over, you know, 10, 20 years, there have been many, many stories about missing persons in the United States. And it, it's raised another issue. You know, her, her awful, tragic death and the media coverage from that has raised an issue that has been raised many times before. And for the past 20 years, it's been discussed. The, the person who coined this phrase was the late reporter Gwen Eiffel in 2004. And she called it the missing white woman syndrome. Have you heard that? The missing white woman syndrome. There is a tendency in our media to over-report when a, a white woman goes missing relative to anybody else. And ladies, if you're over 30, sorry, you're out of luck because it's, it's young white women. And then it, it's young, attractive white women. And their picture gets posted in a news site and then it goes viral. And they verifiably, by the number of articles written and, and TV reports and shares on social media, they get lots more attention than any other missing person. It's, it, it's also called the, you know, the damsel in distress coverage in the media. And I didn't know this week actually that a young black man named Daniel Robinson went missing in Buckeye three months ago. I hadn't heard that at all, had you? I didn't know that at all until about a week ago. He was a geologist and his vehicle was found and it may have been an accident, it may not have been a compelling true crime story, but still, I didn't know there was a young 
black man missing, and then there are other people on social media this week posting pictures of people of color that were missing, or just anybody who wasn't a white, young, pretty woman. And hey, let's, let's build attention, you know, let's, let's uh, build awareness that these people are missing too. And now there are some people who would, would hear what I just said and think, well, that's just liberal garbage. Or they would say, well, it does always have to be about race. And what's happening is we're just realizing facts. You can count the number of stories written about missing people, the number of TV broadcasts, the number of shares on Facebook. You can count them, and it's just easy to see that there is much, much more coverage, according to the missing white woman syndrome, than there is for the people. And so the media does that, but then the media outlets also say those are the stories that just are more likely to go viral. We don't make people share them. And so what, what, what that does is, for me, it points to the systemic issue. This might be, I don't know where you are, this might be another point in the sermon where you go, where's the door? I don't know. But for me, as a white guy, white middle-aged guy, becoming more and more middle-aged, or I don't know, every single day, it points out to me, wait a second, here's where I am in the privilege walk. And this world is not as it should be. And maybe I have something that I can do about that. And so it seems now that most of American Christianity is about protecting this privilege. And there are lots of churches in America where, and you know this is true, after the few minutes that I've been speaking, lots of people would have got up and left. That's so true in lots of churches. I would no longer be employed as the pastor after this sermon. There would be a firestorm of controversy uh, because of what I just said in lots of churches in America. Because it seems, about, it seems that American Christianity has largely become about who to exclude LGBTQ folks, people with brown skin, to a certain extent people experiencing poverty. And women are often ex excluded from leadership. As we said last week, some portion of American Christianity is nothing other than white Christian nationalism. So that's where we are. They want to feel superior. They want to feel self-righteous. They want to continue to live in fear, even though, of course, to their dying day, they would never admit to being prejudiced or being fearful or thinking that somebody else is a threat. Of course, they're not going to admit that. But of course, that's what's happening. And anybody who's an outside observer can easily see that. This, this desire to feel superior and to grasp at privilege the way that Jesus didn't do. And so Jesus had something to say about that. That tendency to want to feel, feel superior to other people. In, in the book, Brad Jersak uh, cites Jesus' parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee and the publican, it's called. So um, in, in the world in which Jesus lived, a Pharisee was a fine, upstanding religious person. They, they, they were the clean-cut you know, religious people you know, fine, upstanding, honest people. And then the tax collector, or the publican, as they were called, they were an entrepreneur. This is a time when the Roman Empire occupied the land where Jesus lived. They collected taxes, of course, from the people they conquered. And a tax collector was, a, was an opportunistic person who was an entrepreneur. And they said, okay, local Roman governor, I'm going to pay you in advance for all the taxes that you need to collect. So this person had to have some wealth. And then I'll collect taxes from the people. And this is somebody who's a local person in, in the same people group as the people he's going to be collecting taxes from. So he goes and he pays the Romans first, all the taxes, and then he goes and collects taxes. Does he collect the exact same amount that he paid the Romans? You're quick. People, you know how things work. And so he took a little off the top, sometimes a lot off the top. And he became wealthy by running this business of collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. So did people love him or hate him? He was a hated person, despised. They viewed tax collectors as literal sellouts to the Roman Empire who got rich off of everybody else. So here's the story Jesus tells. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself 
away from other people. He's a religious separatist. He stood by himself and prayed. God, I, I, I think Jesus had an awesome sense of humor. I just have to picture these, people, these stories being funny. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right over here who can hear what I'm saying right now, correct? I just, I love these stories. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus gives the twist ending so much in his parables, where there's this twist ending where the person that you expect to be, the person that, that God approves of, and God exalts, and God says, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, is the exact opposite of, of, of who you expect. So this Pharisee and his self-righteousness, he's praying, God, thank you, and he just picks really bad people. And so he, can, he doesn't compare himself to like really nice you know, people. He picks really bad people, so, robbers. You know, God, I thank you that I'm not like you know, all the serial killers out there. And, and, or even, and then, of course, he looks at this guy, or like, or like this loser over here who can hear what I'm saying. God, thank you that I'm not like him. And this, this self-righteous smugness, this desire that comes after, you know, we're not Sigmund Freud, but some insecurity in his own life that he has to feel like this. He hates himself, and he projects that onto the world like it's common with religious fundamentalists who don't know what, what all the causes are. But he has this self-righteous superiority complex. And that's how he views himself compared to everybody else. And the tax collector is willing to say, you know, God, I cheated people. What I did was wrong. I'm sorry, please be merciful to me. No excuses. And Jesus says, that's the kind of person who humbles himself. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's been said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself, finish it for me, it's thinking of yourself less. It's just not being as preoccupied about yourself as we're often tempted to be. Webster's divine, defines humility, I love this, as freedom from pride or arrogance. That'll preach. Freedom from pride or arrogance. Humility, humbleness, is not about you know, thinking you're trash. That's, that's just bad theology that hurts people. You're gonna get that in a lot of churches, no. Bad theology hurts people, it creates more people like the Pharisee, people who hate themselves. It's just this, this never-ending cycle. Humility is not thinking you're trash. Humility, and it'll be on the screen, is seeing yourself rightly instead of self-righteously. It's seeing yourself as you are accurately. The good parts, the bad parts, or the parts that you, you know, wish could be changed, the parts that you want to grow in your character and change. It's seeing all that, seeing yourself rightly, seeing the things you do well, too. Seeing yourself righteously instead of self-righteously. It's the ability to say, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. The same as everybody else. We're all in this together. That's what humility means. And that kind of hospitality benefits, benefits all of us. And this all sounds good, but there is a benefit for you too. There is something that's in it for you. It's not just about being, you know, goody two-shoes people and being nice to other people. There is something in this for you, too. I was listening to a podcast recently, and the author mentioned a book um, by Heather McGee, uh, who uh, wrote a book called The Sum of Us, What Racism Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And the premise of this book is it, it calls out the erroneous belief, and I'm just going to speak frankly here, the erroneous belief held by some whites that anything that benefits people of color hurts white people. As uncomfortable as it is to hear, I'm going to say that again. It's, it calls out the erroneous belief held by some whites that anything that benefits people of color hurts white people. I'm going to give you an example. A few years ago, there was an election in Missouri about expanding health care. 
And there are people all over the state of Missouri that would have benefited from that expansion of healthcare, including lots of rural people between Kansas City and St. Louis. The way the election went, the rural folks, almost entirely white, voted against expanding the healthcare. That would have certainly helped them. People died because they couldn't get the healthcare that they could have gotten if they would have voted for the expansion of healthcare. And the, the talk afterwards, the commercials that were run during the campaign made it pretty clear that the message was the rural whites voted against it because they were afraid that black people in St. Louis might get some free healthcare. And so they voted in such a way that hurt themselves because the, the campaign was put in such a way that, that if they voted for that, it would benefit people of color. And that the fallout of that election made national news because it was such a glaring example of this that has worked time and time again throughout American history. That's what the book's about. So um, Heather McGee talks about data-driven uh, explanations of how racism hurts everybody and our ability to prosper in education policy. Education policy that would help white kids and help black kids and help any other color of kids. But, but there are, are people who will vote against it because they think it'll help people of color. And so they're willing to hurt themselves. Student loan debt, the subprime mortgage crisis back in the recession, the lack of affordable health care, environmental pollution, voter suppression laws, and on and on and on. The book is about how there are some people who think that life is a zero-sum game. That if people of color get something, then I as a white person won't get it. And Heather McGee calls out the fact that that's wrong. That is inaccurate. That actually it would help you too. And that racism is a tool used by some against you, white voters, to keep you where you are, whereas your life could have been made better if you would let racism just go fall away in the past. Yeah, I don't know. This might be another place in the sermon where some people go, where's the door? But, but, we have history and we have factual information and we have this call that Jesus did not grasp his privilege. So if we're willing to humble ourselves and serve and let go of privilege, welcoming everyone makes life better for all of us. If we decide that we want to live like the Pharisee, God, thank you that I'm not like this other person, or we could change it. God, thank you that I have all these things that these other people don't have. Thank you that I worked harder than they did. I'm such a hard worker. Discounting where we would fall in the privilege walk. Not thinking of that quote, he was born on 30, thought he hit a triple. If there are people who pray prayers like that, God, thank you, and they call them blessings even. Hashtag blessed. Thank you that I have all these things that other people don't have. Life is not better for everybody. Whether it's about race, whether it's about sexual orientation, whether it's about gender, whatever the issue is, if we take that mentality of God, thank you that I'm better or that I have more, and just not facing the clear reality like the privilege walk, that things are not as they should be. And we can do something about that as people who are called to follow Jesus. We can refuse to grasp onto that privilege. And we can say, wait a second, what does it mean for me to humble myself and serve and enter into the experience of another person the way that Jesus entered into our experience? Then maybe we're getting somewhere for what it means to follow Jesus. I don't assume, by the way, as nuanced as this is, that that means you always vote the same way. I don't know. But what I mean is it's, it's a heart issue in the sense that I'm willing to humble myself and join God in God's work 
of making this world more as it should be as the privilege walk revealed to me. And life is better for all of us. I planted a church unbelievably now nine years ago called One Church. My wife and I moved here from Columbus, Ohio. We got tired of the gray skies and, uh, and uh, the rain and the snowstorms and all that. And, and, and we had some friends out here and we believe we felt God's call you know, to come out and, and start a church. And so we landed here in March of 2012. And then in March of 2013, we started our first weekly worship service. So it took a year to get that thing off the ground. And, and the night before our very first worship service, I received an email from a woman in Chandler, and she wrote this to me the night before our very first service in that church. Hi, Ryan, I just came across an ad for One Church, a church called One Church, in the Santan Sun News. I would like to be straightforward, pun intended, she says. I know what One Church's view, belief on homosexuality is. I have been searching for a church for my family for the past three years. We've tried out a few, but the good old standby of love the sinner, hate the sin always surfaces. I believe my family with two moms and three adopted children isn't broken and we don't need fixing. I'm in need of a safe place to teach my children about Jesus where they won't be told their family is wrong or bad. I know that you cannot speak for the members of the church, and I'm not asking for all the people to be accepting, but overall I would appreciate an honest answer on how the church handles this topic. Thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to your response respectfully, and I won't say her name. And so she wrote an email to a pastor the night before the first service saying, I've been looking for a church. So here's what the email says. I'm a lesbian. My partner and I are together and we have three adopted kids and we're trying to bring our kids to church. We're trying to come to church and bring our kids. And we go to churches and we eventually hear somehow that, you know, we're bad. And we don't want that message getting to our kids for obvious reasons. And so I'm asking you for an honest answer about whether we're really accepted as at your church that you're about to start tomorrow. And imagine, now, that's an email to me, yes, but it's an email to that church. And anybody could send that email now, of course. It's an email to you. What would your answer be? And this is back in 2013. This is before same-sex marriage was legal. It was the hot topic. It was the issue in the United States. And I wrote back to her that night, and I wrote, absolutely, your family is welcome. We're not going to let anybody bully your kids or tell them that your family is bad. And then over the next few months, I clarified that, I, that I'm an affirming pastor, that I welcome people who are in the LGBTQ community to, to fully participate in the church, no bait and switch, and that's, that's how we're gonna do it. And since that time, we, you know, actually, the day that I really gave that sermon that clarified it, a third of the people left the church within a month. They had the, where's the door feeling? And there were a bunch of people who, who said, we need to have coffee. And you know what that's code for. And so I, I did it. You know, I fell for it. I, I've learned a lot since. And, and uh, all the coffees went the same way. Hey, did you really mean your sermon? <laughs> yeah, I did. Okay, well, we're out. Most people were civil. About a couple weren't, but most people were. There were some hugs. There were some God bless you. But that, uh, where's the door, was too powerful for a third of the church. And over the next few months, even more people came because of our stance. And since that time, just being honest with you, I've been called names. I haven't gotten death threats, thankfully, but I have gotten threats. Um, nothing here that needs to be worried about. I haven't received anything here about that. But we do run ads, and I try to get to those comments that are, that are vile before a lot of people can see them. And so every day, several times a day, I'm reading comments that are just, wow, somebody just put that on the internet. And just out of curiosity, I'll go to their Facebook page, because you can, right? And, and, and I'll let my curiosity get the best of me, and I'll look, and it's like, you know, arrest Fauci. The election was rigged. You know, white Christian nationalism on the Facebook page, almost entirely that. It's what it is, I'm not making it up. That's, that's the kind of people who are commenting, 
in writing nasty things on the Wells ads that we run. And, and so there's a lot of criticism. And maybe you get that from family and friends. I don't know from where you are in your spiritual life. But when we talk about privilege and not grasping and humbling ourselves and how welcoming everybody makes life better for all of us, I want to tell you something that I've learned. I've learned it the hard way, but it's, I hesitate to say the hard way because it's also been, oh man, I don't have words to say it, but I'm going to try. The criticism, the vitriol that we have received is nowhere near as powerful as the joy of welcoming everybody. It's not even close. It's not even close to the great surprise and consternation probably of a lot of people who have leveled those criticisms. It's not even close. I can say this. This doesn't make me a hero. It's just, it's just to show how not close it is. Over the past nine years, not one time have I ever thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't welcome. Not one time have I, has that even occurred to me. Because the joy of welcoming everybody is so much more powerful than, than the world that I used to live in. This religiously oppressive world and the self-righteous world and feeling like you got to look down on other people and prove your superiority all the time because God hates you because you're trash. And you got to, you know, there were altars in my church. If you don't know what that is, it's like a, it's like a wooden rail and you would go to the altar. Do you, does anybody know what this is? Is it just me? Okay. And, and sometimes the, the pastor would have an altar call, which meant at the end of the sermon, you would come down and kneel at the altar and basically confess your sins. And there are people who would kneel at the altar and they would be born again. And like Shane Claiborne says, the way that it worked in those churches, you felt so guilty, you'd go to the, the altar every week and you'd get born again, 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 and again, and again. Because every week you just felt bad and you'd go to the altar and, you, and, and you, it's just like you're constantly groveling at God's feet. You're so bad. I don't want to go back to that atmosphere. I believe sin exists, of course. I believe in salvation and in the cross and, and Jesus' gift for us. I believe in all that. I still do. I'm a Christian. But it's just it's a different atmosphere. I don't want to go back to that oppressive religion that was behind that Pharisee. Oh, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy over here who could actually hear me. And looking down on everybody else, it's such a heavy burden to bear. And life is better for all of us if we can just get out of that. And like Jesus, be willing to let go and it actually what it is to share our privilege. I don't have to give anything up to help people behind me in the privilege walk get up to where I am and get us all forward. I don't have to give anything up. It's, that's an erroneous belief that people give to us to keep it like that because they're the people who are way up there. It's not hard to see. But life is better for all of us when we're willing to welcome Everybody, I want to close with this. Mark Tidd is a pastor friend of mine in Denver. And Mark, you know, I, I had this realization in 2013. Back in 2009, Mark was the pastor of a denominational church and a, and a conservative denomination that did not welcome everybody. And he had the growing realization that we, we need to welcome the LGBTQ community. We need to do that. And that became clear to him in 2009. And he was ordained by this group and had a, he was in a flourishing ministry. And he said it out loud. And he was immediately, you know, out of a job. And, and lost his ordination and, and he started a church called Highlands Church in Denver. And uh, he, where he made it clear, we're gonna allow everybody, including those in the LGBTQ community, to be a part of the church in full participation. No bait and switch, not an issue. He was on ABC News, CNN, I mean, imagine 2009. And in the course of, of their, their life at Highlands Church in Denver, he wanted to just kind of distill their values, how they felt about welcoming everybody, no matter where they are in life, people who didn't feel welcome, divorced people, people who didn't feel welcome in church. And so what he did was he wrote this poetic ethos that the church started reciting together in their worship services. And he's revised it a little bit over time to keep it up to date, but I wanted to read it to you now. It'll be on the screen here. Married, divorced, and single here, 
It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and believe here, we can all receive here. LGBTQ and straight here, there's no hate here. Non-binary woman and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. An imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us. Let us live and love without labels. Isn't that beautiful? And he wrote this, you can clap, that's all right. He wrote this and they read it in their service every week. And I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing if we could read that out loud together here in a moment. We don't necessarily, we don't necessarily read it in every service, but especially in a challenging message. And there may be some, that conservative and liberal part, he's, oh, are you sure about that? I don't know. Well, no, but we, yeah, everybody's welcome here. And we're going to read all of this out loud together for those of you who are willing. And then as a pastor, I've learned over the years, when you read something out loud in church, even if it's something really inspiring and beautiful and amazing, it's just the way we're trained in church. We'll be like, Mary divorce this thing we're here, it's only we're here. So let's not read it like that. Can we, can we make each other a pact that we're not going to read it like that? That we're going to read it like we actually mean it. And you, and you can read it loud because everybody else is going to be reading it loud. If you mean it, if you don't mean it, don't read it. Right? But if, if you want to read it, let's read it like we mean it and read it loudly. Is, is that a deal? All right, let's read it together. Married, divorced, and single here, it's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and believe here, we can all receive here. LGBTQ and straight here, there's no hate here. Non-binary woman and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us. Say it loud. Let us live and love without labels. Isn't that great? Amen. Correct. That we have the privilege of living together like this. It doesn't have to be the old way. And the privilege walk where, where people were born on third and thought they hit a triple. And some people have to work so much harder. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus let go of his privilege. He was willing to share it and enter into our human experience and humble himself and, and take on the mindset of a servant. And we want to we imitate Jesus. And that's what Christianity means. That's what it means to be a Christian. And welcoming everybody helps all of us. Let's pray. God, we want to follow the real Jesus way. God, give us the courage to break out of the typical. Oh God, we live in a time in which in some households, cable news is on five hours a day, every day. And then people come to church for an hour a week or they go to an online connect group and it's hard to break through the noise. It's hard for the real Jesus to break through. All of the political propaganda in our country to the extent that when some of us hear scripture straight from the Bible that's clear as a bell and we talk about way, you know, practical ways to apply that, it's controversial. Dear God, may someday we as a country break out of this really trap that has been set for us by people at the very front who benefit from it. And may we see where we are in the privilege walk and simply say, I, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, and I love everybody else, and I want to welcome everybody, and I humble myself, and this world's not as it should be. It is a fallen world, and I want to work to make it better. I want to partner with God to make it better. 
and humbling ourselves and serving and sharing our privilege is not a controversial message. It's just like, duh. Why wouldn't we do that? But because of the propaganda and the lies and the, the ridiculous political machinery in our country that seems so far away. To the point during the sermon, people, oh, he wants me to vote this way. He wants me to vote that way. Nope. <laughs> people who want to follow Jesus read the words of Jesus and then put them into practice. And later on, they'll figure out how to vote for themselves. But God, we have to make a decision at some point whether we want to follow the real Jesus or we want to follow a fake Jesus that's been co-opted and hijacked for ridiculous reasons. We have decisions to make. God, this book is challenging. And as we hear sermons and read the book and have a discussion in the online connect group, all of the questions, all the objections, all the uh, moments, God, they're invitations. They're not invitations about what political party to join or whether to watch Fox News or CNN. That's more garbage from the time we live in. They're, they're invitations to, to follow Jesus. And then you can work out how that looks in your life. But they're invitations to follow Jesus. God, as we follow the real Jesus and show hospitality, encourage us with the smiles and stories of people we get to know and be in community with. And life is so much better. Our church is so much better without the oppressive religion that teaches us to hate ourselves and then project that on other people and then exclude people so we can include ourselves and feel better about ourselves because we've excluded the other people. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector over there. God, reminds us, remind us that no amount of vitriol or hate will ever be as powerful as the love we experience in a community where all are welcome. Jesus became obedient even to death. He served other people to the point of death on a cross. And may we go all out for what is right, especially in a time like the one we're living in. Thank you that we get to know the real Jesus to follow you. In Jesus' name, everybody said.